0: Yeah, thank you, Andrew. And again, I want to encourage you, whether you're on site or online, to consider how you can participate in our AGM tomorrow night, but also uh, some other ministry opportunities are starting now and will be continuing to roll out in the weeks ahead. Uh, Most of those will also be, and you're going to get used to hearing this term, they will be fidgetal, which means they will be physically available for you to attend, and they'll also be digitally available for you to watch from your home. If you're participating with us as a a member from, uh, from a distance or online. Well, today as we continue this series, I want to tell you a story. It's what I believe to be an amazing story. And like all stories, it has a few key elements that leads to it being a good story. For example, it has diverse characters. Two of these characters we were introduced to last week as we started this series called Stand, focusing upon the first six books of the chapter of Daniel, six first chapters of the book of Daniel. We were introduced last week to a king and to an exiled servant. This servant, his name is Daniel. He's a young adult who comes from a noble line, taken from his homeland in Judah to Babylon, where he's entered into a a, a pre-programming kind of school where he excels, but... He remains faithful to his God. The king who is in charge of all this is a king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, a mighty ruler of an immensely powerful, rich empire, a king who was groomed from the very young age to be king. He had been spoiled his whole life. Anything he'd ever wanted, it was granted to him. He had always had success in nothing but. The best and nothing but. He had never heard the word no, which will become important in our story today. There's a hero in the story. Now, I'm not going to tell you who the hero is yet. I think he'll slowly be revealed as we go through the story. But like all good heroes, his presence is able to change everything. There's conflict in the story. Maybe conflict between the king and his wise men, a little bit. Maybe conflict between Daniel and some of the king's wise men, perhaps. But actually, I'm going to tell you what the conflict is. The real conflict is this courtroom battle between the gods that these two characters worship. And there's a message for us in this story as well. Now it's likely a message that you've heard before, maybe you've even thought of before, but I'm willing to bet that it's also a message you have perhaps not recently stopped to pause and reflect upon. And I want to give you a glimpse of what that message is before we even start the story. I'm not going to give you the whole message, but I want to give you the first part of the message because I want you to keep this thought in your mind as we go through our story today. And here it is. Are you ready? Keep this in your mind. The first part of the message. God is able god is able can you say that with me god is able i know we're not breaking any rules here because we're not singing but we're going to speak god is able if you're online feel free to type that in the chat box so i know what you're tracking with me and here's the thing if you know him personally what i mean by him i mean the god of the bible The God that Daniel serves remains faithful to, if you know him personally, you can add to that by saying, my God is able. Keep that in mind, because we walk through this story today found in Daniel chapter 2. I think when we're done, I want to invite you to find with me that we can stand amazed. That we can join myself and Daniel and the king and many, many others. The king who I'm going to refer to as Nebi, because it's just fun to say, throughout the whole message. King Nebi and others, we able to stand amazed at the God who is able. So as the story opens, we find Daniel, as we know, is in Babylon, and he's been there for a few years at this point. And Nebi, we're told, has a dream. And it's a troubling dream. It's it's a dream that leads to sleeplessness. I'm I'm sure we've all experienced this to some degree at some point in our lives, where you wake up and, and, and it seems so real you're not sure, am I awake, am I still sleeping, because the emotion is still there. You're in this new reality of awakenedness, but you're not sure if the dream is over, if it actually happened, but you're thankful it didn't, because it's troubling. But the emotion is still there. It was so vivid, so disturbing, that you wanted to stay awake, because if you go back to sleep, you might just end up in act two of that dream. Perhaps this has revealed itself in a different way in your life if you're married, where you go to sleep one night and then you wake up eight hours later and you're in a pretty good mood and you roll over and say good morning to your spouse. Nothing. She's not talking. And you're thinking, what in the world did I do over the last eight hours? And then you realize you did something in her dream that you don't know about and you're going to pay for it today. (laughs) Anyone ever had this happen to them? Regardless, Nebi has a dream. And in this particular time, there was a strong belief that dreams and visions were messages from the gods. And it leads him to have anxiety and fear. And so he needs an answer to this mystery. What does this dream mean? What is this message? And so he calls in his best magicians, his best enchanters, sorcerers, astrologers, those people in his kingdom who are trained in the pagan arts of dream interpretation. Those who have the ability to to manipulate and read people and spiritual signs and entities in order to reveal mysteries. And as we learned last week, this is a significant part of the leadership training school that Daniel's been enrolled in. Dream interpretation is one of the things you can major in in this particular school. And if you were to major in dream interpretation, they would teach you a few things, including the protocol that existed for such a situation. They would train you that the day may come when the king would ask you to come into his presence. And as you walked in, you would bow before him and then say something like we find in verse 4. May the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we shall interpret it for you. But remember from birth, Nebuchadnezzar has been trained as a leader. He's been trained that he can have what he wants the way he wants. And he decides he's going to break with protocol in this particular situation. It's not going to follow the convention of the day. And he has firmly decided in his mind that he's not going to tell them the dream. Instead, they are going to tell him the dream. And the interpretation along with it. We can understand how ridiculous this is. It would be the equivalent of us going to our doctor and saying, Doctor, I need your help. The doctor says, what is the problem? Well, I'm not going to tell you. If you were really a good doctor... If you really went to med school, if you really care about me, you should just know what's wrong with me. Well, help me out, Mark. Is it it your leg? Is it your back? Did you tweak your back somehow? Did you fall off a ladder? Tell me what happened so I can assist you. No. Well, I'm going to assume you've hit your head then because this is ridiculous and irrational for you to expect such a thing. You can imagine a doctor's response to such a situation. Well, these king's advisors, these wise men, have a similar response. You want them to respond in the same way that your doctor would respond to you, but they can't, because it's the king, and because the king just raised the stakes. He says to them, if you're not able to do this, if you can tell me my dream, if you can interpret my dream, I will reward you. I will honor you like nobody has ever been honored before. Beyond your wildest dreams, I will reward you if you can tell me what my dream was. But if not, then I'm going to call into question the integrity of your ability as a wise man and I'm going to cut you to pieces and I will completely leave your family in ruin. Well, hoping that the king is playing some sort of cruel joke, they ask him again, tell us the dream and we'll interpret it for you. hoping he will reconsider that they can buy themselves more time. Tell us the dream, king, and we'll interpret it for you. No. Finally, in their frustration, it reaches a peak, and they say to him, king, no king has ever asked such a thing of his wise men. And in verse 11, they say something very, very profound. They say, what the king has asked is impossible No one except the gods are able to tell you your dream. And they don't live among people. See, their statement is more profound than they know because it is partially true. You see, dreams and visions come from one of three places. Either they come from God, or they come from evil spirits, or they come from the spicy burrito you ate too late last night. It's one of those three places. If they come from the burrito, that's you. And that's the most common type of dreams that we have, where your, your, your mind is just processing events and feelings that have happened throughout the day, and that, that's not divine, that's just you. Aside from the fact that we can dream, which I guess we call divine, but not necessarily a divine message within that dream. Sometimes, rarely, but sometimes there's, there's evil influences into our dreams. But if that is the case, if that were to happen, there's only one purpose for that, and, and that is Deception. Because the realm of evil simply works to be contrary to the will and the character of God. Who is the third option for the source of a dream. A message within a dream. And God has in the past spoken to people through dreams and revelations and visions. And I believe he still does today. Speak to people who are seeking answers. Who are seeking guidance. Who need to know him for the purpose of salvation. I do believe he still speaks to people in this fashion today. Not commonly. But it happens. For example, if you talk to a missionary, a person who comes from from the Middle East, the area where the spirit of Babylon is still alive in some regions, it is not uncommon to hear them speak of having a dream of where they have died in their sleep, and they awake before a man in white, before Jesus who leads them to seek him. It still happens today. And so it was true what these people said, that there is no person There is no false religion. There is no evil power that can reveal the mysteries of this king's dream. But they were wrong as well. They are wrong because their theology did not allow them to have a God who is accessible to his people. And as we learned last week, Daniel was excelling in this leadership training school he was in. And near the end of chapter 1, we read that God gave him knowledge and understanding of all kinds, including the ability to interpret dreams. Nebuchadnezzar himself at the end of chapter 1 says, Daniel is 10 times better than any magician, than any astrologer in his entire kingdom, and yet Daniel's not present at this initial moment of conflict in our story. He wasn't brought in. Because Daniel and his friends remained faithful to their God. They weren't magicians. They weren't sorcerers. They weren't astrologers who tried to read the signs. They were men of faith who knew the maker of the stars. Had Daniel been there, the presence of God who is able would have been there as well with him. But in anger at the futility of his pagan wise men, the king decides to order their death of all wise men, including Daniel and his friends. Now, you can imagine their surprise when the executioner, a man named Arioch, finds Daniel who has no idea what's going on and arrests him and takes him away to prison where he's going to be killed. And you can imagine Daniel saying, whoa, 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 what's happening here? And Arioch explained the situation to Daniel who, who, who practices some, some smooth talking and imagines, is able to get a meeting with the king. <clears throat> And after standing before the king and confirming the details of what Arioch had told him, he asked the king, can I have a little more time and then come back and interpret your dream? And the king grants it to him. Now, as a little sidebar, notice that Daniel makes the exact same requests that the wise men earlier in the story made, but the king didn't grant it to them, but he grants more time to Daniel. And I want to suggest to you this, that that when you are faithful to God and to God's will, when you are in the flow of what God's doing in this situation, do not be surprised when you receive opportunities other people don't, as Daniel did in this situation. And so Daniel gets home, and he sees his roommates, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And they say, Daniel, how was your day? It was good and bad. I got good news and I got bad news. Tell us the good news. Well, I saw the king today. He has a mission for us. And I'm pretty sure that, that this mystery he wants us to solve is from God. And that's awesome. That's fantastic, Daniel. What's the bad news? We have till tomorrow or we die. In this moment, they feel the need. And Daniel calls them. He urges them. He pleads with them to pray to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. He calls them to pray, to pray to the God who is able, who is able to give them the answers in the moment that they need. Now, prayer wasn't new to them. You see, they didn't just pray when crises came their way. It wasn't like they had this remember this Batman shows where the bat signal goes up in times of chaos that wasn't what their prayer life was like they had this regular rhythm and pattern of prayer not just during moments of crisis they prayed at least 3 times a day faithfully especially during their exile And because they had that pattern of prayer built into their lives, when trouble came up, prayer was not their last resort. It was their first line of attack. And so they pull an all-nighter. They pray to God that God would save them, that he would use them in this situation, and that the king's dream would be revealed to them. And it was. It was revealed to Daniel through a vision. And I can just picture them. As they're on their knees in 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 their home praying earnestly to God for hours and then it happens the vision comes the mystery becomes known and they look at each other and they rise to their feet and they stand amazed at the God who is able and then Daniel moved to praise the God of heaven offers this incredible prayer of 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 amazing of God's amazing power and amazing wisdom As he prays he says says, the pagan seer said no God could do such thing. No man could do such thing. But all praise and all glory be to the God of heaven because we stand amazed at the God who is able. Who is able to show his power that through all seasons they are changed at the will of God. God determines the numbers of a king's days. These most powerful forces in the world around us, the seasons and the tyrants, are all submissive to God's power and authority. And his wisdom is beyond all. There is nothing beyond him. There is no secret too deep. There is nothing too hidden. There is nothing too dark that his light cannot reveal made known. And then in verse 23, he says, I thank you and I praise you, God of my ancestors, you have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what I have asked. You have made known to me the dream of the king. And with this confidence enabled by the revelation and the presence of God, he goes back to Ariok and says, don't kill anybody and take me to the king because I will interpret his dream. He's immediately rushed into the presence of the king and he stands in the same spot that he stood just hours earlier in mystery, but he now stands in a moment of clarity. And Nebi only has one question for him. Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? And Daniel knows that in this moment, his life and the life of many, many others hangs in the balance of his next word, Are you able to tell me my dream and interpret it? No. I'm not. No, you're not. No, king. No wise man. No enchanter. No magician. No diviner can explain to the king the mystery he's asked about. But there is a God in heaven who is able to reveal the mysteries. And he has shown the king what will happen in the days to come. And with the king now on the edge of his seat, the mystery is finally solved as Daniel puts words to the images that the king saw. And he says, O majesty, before you stood, an enormous, dazzling statue. The head of that statue was made of pure gold. And if you look closely enough at it, king, if you remember in your mind's eye, if you go back remember that, it was like looking in a mirror. Because you, King, are the King of Kings, you are the mightiest ruler over all of all time. You, King, are that head. If you look a little lower, the chest and the arms represent another kingdom to come after you, inferior because it's made of silver, not gold. Below that, the belly and the thighs of bronze, yet another kingdom that will rule the whole earth. Below that, the legs made of iron, and the feet of partly iron and clay, of lesser value than the other three elements but strong and powerful. As iron breaks and crushes everything, this kingdom will break and crush everything under its control. But it has a weakness. You see, iron and clay can be formed, but they can't be bonded together, and so this will be a divided kingdom. You see, King, this kingdom will have many, many people, but many people of diversity, and it will be brittle in its alliances. Now, Daniel and the king could have not known this in the moment. The the, the author of the book of Daniel could not have known this when these words were first written. But through this dream, God was proving he is able to know and control the events of history. You see, that gold head represents the Babylonian Empire. An empire that was full of riches and power. It was the greatest tyrant that the world had known. The kingdom below that of two silver arms is the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians who came together under the leadership of King Cyrus, who later we'll read about in the book of Daniel as Daniel served him some 60 years down the road. Bronze is representative of the Greek empire led by Alexander the Great. and Did you know that when Alexander's armies went into battle, their shields, their helmets, their breastplates were made of bronze and iron representing the Roman Empire? who conquered broadly, defeated soundly all nations they came encounter with. But as they spread out broadly, they became diverse. They were not ruled by a tyrant. They are ruled by a senate, and they could not hold together. And they became brittle, and they fractured, and they fell apart. You see, this isn't the part of the dream that concerned Nebi. In fact, he may have even been glad about this because he's the gold head. It affirms him. This wasn't the part that troubled him. What really troubled him was what came next. Because as his dream continued, there is this rock, maybe even a pebble, that we're told was not cut by human hands, who struck the feet of that statue and smashed them. And all the other kingdoms above them came crashing down and fell into small little pieces, not much bigger than dust, that were blown away just blown away like chaffed off the threshing room floor. But that rock, it remained. And that rock grew into a huge mountain that filled the whole earth. And as Daniel explained, this is the meaning of the rock that is not cut by human hands. He says, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up his kingdom. And it will never be destroyed. It will crush all other kingdoms. It will bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. At this Nebuchadnezzar would have stood in amazement that his dream had not only been known but had been revealed, that the mystery had been solved, and he would have stand amazed at the God of wisdom and power. He would have stood amazed at the God who is able, who knows all of our days, who appoints and deposes kings, the God who is able to reveal mysteries and is available to his people. And in amazement as the king stands, and a minute later he falls flat on the ground prostrate before Daniel. And he orders that, incense and offerings be brought in to place before Daniel. Not not in worship of Daniel, but in worship of the God that Daniel knows and Daniel serves. In worship of the God who is able to make the most powerful pagan king of the world lie flat on his face before an exiled servant. Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. The message that God gave to the king. The protection, the revelation that God gave to Daniel in this story. I believe is amazing as he reveals history and they can stand amazed. But here's the thing for us today. I don't think this is just a message for for the king and for Daniel and for the people of that time. I think this is a message for all people, for all times. I think it's a message for us too. Because remember, at the very beginning of the story, I gave you the first part of the lesson. The first part of the message. What was it? God is able. And if you know him, if you know personally the God of the Bible, you could even say, my God is able. But let's not stop there. Let's keep the story going. Because that stone, that stone that struck the feet of the statue, the statue that represents the kingdoms of the earth, that stone is Jesus Christ. And as God foretold in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, that stone would arrive and it would strike during the Roman Empire. And let's not forget that it was Caesar Augustus who decreed that a Roman that census should be taken of the Roman world, which brought Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem, where Jesus was born, as prophesied by the prophet Micah 700 years earlier. Let's not forget that during Jesus' ministry, it was a Roman centurion, a leader of armies, who came to Jesus in faith and sought the healing for his son. It was foretold that the Messiah would be the one who can make the blind see the lame walk, the sick healed, and the good news proclaimed. It was a Roman governor named Pilate who presided over the trial of Jesus that led to his crucifixion as he was nailed upon a Roman cross. It was a Roman soldier who stood at the foot of that cross and watched him die and said, truly, this man was the Son of God. It was Roman guards who protected the tomb, who protected the stone from being rolled back, but they could not keep God from working because Jesus rose victorious on the third day, even under the watch of the Roman Empire. You see, that empire and the leaders of the day tried to stop the arrival of the kingdom of God, but they were not able to do so. They knew it was coming. John the Baptist arrived on the scene. He said, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. It's about to arrive. And then when Jesus stepped foot on the scene, he declared the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Meaning it could be near to each person. It could be near to their hearts. It means the God of heaven has come near to all people. Repent, turn from your ways, and believe in the God who is able. Daniel said this was a stone that was not cut by human hands. That means there is no human will. No human origin, no human power in the existence and the purpose of this stone. And as Jesus stood before Pilate and was questioned about his kingdom, Jesus said, what? He said, my kingdom is not of this world. It's beyond human power, beyond human hands. Speaking of his divine origin and speaking of ultimately his divine authority and position that he will hold as the Alpha, the Omega, the First and the last." It says a stone starts small, maybe even a petal, perhaps a pebble the size of a mustard seed. Because Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, that is the smallest of all seeds, but when it's planted in the ground and it grows, it becomes the greatest of all plants that birds can perch upon it. It As a stone that remains grows to a huge mountain and covers the whole earth. And today, that kingdom does cover the whole earth. It covers the whole earth because a motley crew of men and women from Judea, Daniel's hometown, went out in the good news of Jesus Christ and took it to the nations of the world. And nations of the world took it to the whole world. And eventually, over time, it made its way to you and to you and to you and to me. And we were invited to experience new life in Jesus Christ. We are experienced to repent, to turn from our sinful ways, and to place our trust in Jesus Christ for life now and for all eternity. We were invited to become children of the kingdom of God, to become citizens of God's kingdom that exists without any end. We were called to become ambassadors to the nations, to invite them to come and experience The new life that is possible through Jesus Christ. To come to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven where Jesus Christ rules as the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Amen? And I'm just scratching the surface. There's over a hundred messianic prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. They were written 400 to 1,500 years before his birth. We have an amazing God who is able... And I think having proven that God is able, I can now tell you the rest of the story. Because there's one more prophecy that completes the message for us today. And there's a prophecy written in Psalms 118. Where it says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. See, whenever you erect a building, whenever you build something, especially in this day and age that that these words were written... The very first stone you cut has to be perfect. Perfect in its 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 angles, perfect in its dimension, perfect in its size, perfect in every way, perfect in its materials. It's referred to as the foundation stone, as the keystone, it's the cornerstone. Because that first stone is the one that everything else built upon it and from it is measured by. And if your cornerstone is off by just a couple of degrees if it's made of just, just the wrong purity of material, your building will either go up crooked, it will be unstable, or it will be limited in size and ability. And there's one thing that is true of all people. And this is why I say it as a message, not just for in the past, but a message for people in the present as well. There's one thing true of all of us. We are all building our lives upon something. We are all trying to solve problems upon something. I want to suggest to you today that Jesus is able to be that cornerstone, that he is able to be the cornerstone in every area of your life. What does that mean? That means putting him first, that whatever area you may have need, whatever area that you are wrestling and struggling, whatever area that you have established a kingdom in your own name, Proverbs 3.6 tells us that in all of your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight acknowledge him in all your ways make him the cornerstone of all your ways and he will make your paths straight that means putting jesus first in the routineness of your life in your daily tasks in your homes whether you're just driving to work hanging out with friends in your recreational time jesus can be the cornerstone of those moments put jesus first See the impact he has upon your life and the lives of those around you. See the freedom you find from sin when you start with Jesus because he will not lead you into sin. In those moments of strife, if you walk into a room and somebody in a relationship with there and there's tension, he can be the cornerstone of that relationship. If you sit down to pay bills and there's stress, he can be the cornerstone of your finances. If you're waiting for the test results, he can be the cornerstone of your future. Put Jesus first. It doesn't mean it's all going to go your way. It means it'll go his way, which is better than whatever we could have dreamed on our own. And the things of eternity, there's only one who dwells with his people. There's only one God of heaven, Jesus Christ, who came, who taught, who gave the example, who gave his life, for a price we could not pay ourselves. Who defeated hell, sin, death, the grave. He defeated it all and rose victorious. We can start with him. And I believe if we do, we too will stand amazed in this life and the next. So I wanna invite you in this moment to stand with me. In this story today, we heard about a God who is able Able to know the events and control the events of history. A God who is able to oversee the kingdoms of the world and to establish his own kingdom of heaven. A God who is able to invite you to declare, God, you are able in every aspect of my life. So I invite you to stand. To stand and be amazed at the God who is able. Heavenly Father, We declare your awesomeness. We declare that you are able to oversee all things, all people, all situations. You're able to, to resolve these for us. And God, sometimes we build our own kingdoms, have our own ideas, our own thoughts. But as that small stone defeats all other kingdoms of the world, God, I pray that it would defeat our kingdoms too when they are not in line with your will. God, allow us to live with Jesus first. That Jesus is the cornerstone of all aspects of our lives. And then stand amazed at the wondrous things that you do.